chapter 9. We probably won't quite get all the way through it, but Lord willing, we will wrap up the book of Esther next week. We've been in Esther for a few months now, and it's a great story. And now we're drawing to the conclusion. We saw that God's people were kind of scattered all throughout the land, and some of, it, some of them ended up in, uh, in the area that was controlled by the Medo-Persians, uh, and particularly in the area called Susa, which was the capital city. And, and the king there got angry with the king that he had, a queen that he had and got rid of her and, and went out for a search for a new king, queen, and, and he found a new queen. There was a, a beautiful young Jewish girl by the name of Esther. And the king chose Esther to be his queen, and coincidentally, that ended up being a good thing for God's people. Now, it certainly wasn't a coincidence that uh, the king chose Esther to be the queen. God had a hand in that, and one thing that we've seen throughout this book is that God is nowhere mentioned, but God's fingerprints are all over these things that have taken to place. He has continued time and time again to put the right people in the right place at the right time. For what purpose? For the deliverance of his people. And so Esther became queen, and the king had appointed this, this guy to be uh, one of his highest officials. His name was Haman, and Haman was evil. He hated Mordecai, who was Esther's cousin, and raised her. And he desired to kill Mordecai, but not only Mordecai, but all of the people in the land. And he had, he had made this law with the king's approval. He had asked the king, hey, there's these people. We need to get rid of them. And the king said, yeah, whatever you want to do, Haman, do it. And Haman come up with this law that on a certain day of the year, all the Jews would be killed. Well, when Mordecai found out about this news, he told Esther. And after building the courage up, Esther finally went before the king and, and got this, this meal together and called in the king and Haman. And she told the king Haman's plan. And Man, the king was furious. And, and Haman had planned to hang Mordecai on this big gallows that he had built in his house and well, Mordecai's life was spared, but the king said, well, you hang Haman on that, on that gallows. And as a result of that, uh, Haman's plan was thwarted. It, 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 Haman was done, evil Haman, but, but the law that he had put into place that all the, the Jewish people were to be killed on a certain day was still in place. And so we dealt with that last week. When, when, when Haman was killed, the king gave to Esther uh, Haman's estate, and Esther, in turn, gave it to Mordecai. And the king also gave to Mordecai his signet ring. Now, this was a big deal because when Haman had the signet ring, it meant that he had the power. He could pretty much do things with the king's approval. Well, Haman had evil plans, but now Mordecai had the king's signet ring, uh, which, which symbolized the fact that, hey, Mordecai has the power to make a law of his own. Now, the king could not revoke the previous law because it says that a law of the Medes and Persians cannot be revoked. And so the king couldn't just abolish the other law that said the Jewish people would be killed, but he did tell Mordecai and Esther, well, y'all can write a law if you want to, and, and Mordecai came up with the law, kind of a, a solution to the problem. Okay, well, anybody can kill the Jews on this specific day that Haman had set, but Mordecai's law said on this day the Jews can defend themselves, and anybody that comes against the Jews... Well, the Jews now legally can kill anybody, man, woman, child, anything. They can kill them, and they can take all their possessions. And so that kind of was a, a counterbalance 
So people still legally could kill the Jews, but they too were in danger because now the Jews could kill them. And so that was kind of a clever uh, idea, I believe, that Mordecai and Esther came up with. And that's where we left the story last week at the end of Esther 8, is that this new law had been put into place by Mordecai to, to in, in, in a way, kind of, kind of overtake the other law. Now, it didn't abolish the other law, as we're going to see today. There, there are still some who desire to kill the Jewish people. Uh, but, but based on how many people would have been in the land of the Medo-Persians, uh, even though the number we see may look large, it, it was a very small number of people considering. So let's pray, and then we will get started in Esther 9. Father God, we come to you, and your word is good, dear Lord. And I pray that as we read it today that we would get something from it. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak through me, that you would, you'd speak to each of us. You know what's on our hearts. You know what we're going through, dear Lord, and I pray. Maybe we didn't come in here today with the right heart. Maybe we didn't come in here excited about being in your house. Maybe we come in here today with worries and fears and, and just, kind of a, just kind of a feeling of indifference. God, sometimes, if we're honest, we come in here with those kind of things on our mind. But I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would touch each of us today and that your word would, would speak to us in some way that would be what we need to hear. So just get our attention, God, and uh, let us hear from you today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Esther 9, verse 1. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, on the, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand, uh, could withstand them. Terror of them fell on every nationality. Now, here we see... Uh, kind of a kind of a, a theme that we've seen really throughout the book of Esther this this reversal of roles things started out one way but but now just the kind of opposite of what was intended has taken place we see kind of an opposite in these characters uh, maybe the best example of that being Mordecai and Haman Haman hated the Jewish people Haman desired harm Haman hated Mordecai Haman uh, was raised to a position of power and thought lowly of Mordecai but then the roles were reversed. It was, it was Haman who was the one who was killed, even though he wanted to kill Mordecai. It was Mordecai who rose to this position of power. It was Haman who set up this plan that on this specific day that we see here that the Jews were to be killed. But when that day came, what happened? The opposite occurred because Mordecai said, hey, on the same day, the Jews can kill other people. And so we see where a plan of destruction for the Jews was to take place. It actually ended up being a day of deliverance for the Jews. And so we've seen kind of a, kind of a reversal of all of these things throughout the story. What what appeared to, to play out in one way at the beginning of the story, well, just the opposite has happened in just about all of these things that we've seen as we've gone through the story. And so even though people desired to overpower the Jews, God was with them and nobody could withstand the Jews on that day. Verse 3, all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. 
The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dothan, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Permashta, Arasai, Eridai, and Vasatha. They killed these ten sons of Haman, sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. Now, here in, in, in this part of the story, we do see that some came against the Jews. At the end of chapter 8, we saw that for, for, for fear that a lot of people professed to be Jews because they knew what was about to take place. And they, they were fearful of the Jews because, man, they, they, didn't, they didn't want to take part in any of this punishment that was coming. So many professed to be Jews, but there were still some that really hated uh, the Jewish people. And, and there were some that were killed that day, obviously, that had tried to uh, kill the Jewish people. And, and we see not only was Haman killed, but also his sons were killed. Now, this is an interesting thing to consider as we look at this story because we talked about this a little earlier on at the beginning of the book. And, and this, this, this idea that, that we're fixing to discuss is not maybe obvious to us, but I think that it, 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 it may very likely be what, what is intended when we look at the story, at least part of what is intended. And that is the history of the Amalekites and God's people. Way back uh, toward the beginning of Scripture, when God's people were trying to get into the promised land, the Amalekites had attacked them. And God said in that passage that he was going to bring destruction to the Amalekites. Well, if you, if you, if you fast forward a little further down the road, King Saul comes into the picture. And one thing we see about King Saul, that he is a, that he is a uh, descendant of Kish. He is a Benjaminite. Well, we see that same language when we talk about Mordecai, that he is a Benjaminite from the descendant of Kish. Now, King Saul, way back when, was supposed to kill the Amalekites, but he did not kill the Amalekites, all of them, and everything that he was supposed to. Instead of killing their king, he spared their king's life. And their king's name was Agag, who was an Amalekite. Now, God had already wanted to bring destruction on the Amalekites, and he wanted to do that through Saul, but Saul failed to carry that out in the way that he should have carried that out. But now we come a long ways later down the road, and who is Mordecai? A Benjaminite descendant of Kish, just as Saul was. And who was Haman? He was an Agagite. I think it's important that we notice when we see Haman the Agagite repeatedly that I think that that is a clue there for us. And here we see, I think, what God has intended way back from the time of the, of the Israelites' exile when the Amalekites attacked God's people and he said, I'm going to bring destruction. Haman the Agagite was a descendant of the Amalekites. And here we kind of see maybe a fulfillment in some way of what God intended that a complete destruction of these Agagites, these sons of Haman, had taken place, which God wanted all the way from way back toward the beginning of the New Testament. Now, that's not, that's not 
obvious to us when we read the text. But I don't think it's a stretch to think that maybe that the, that the writer of Esther here wants us to make some of those connections by pointing out who Mordecai was and who his descendants were and who Haman was and the fact that it complete, uh, continually refers to him as Haman the Agagite. And so here we see not only the destruction of Haman, but the destruction of all of his sons. Now, why is that important sometimes in Scripture when God says, annihilate these people and annihilate all of these people? This seems like a harsh command for God to command people to do. But, but part of the reason for that is that if you leave people alive and you've destroyed all of the rest of the people and there's only a handful of people alive, guess what they do? They become angry that they want revenge. And so when they have children and grandchildren, they talk about these mean old people and how they overtook us. Now, that's not just true in Bible times. That's true for anybody in any time, for any people that, that another, another people group have come in and have killed off most of the people. Well, there's tensions between countries today all over the world because of events that happened years ago. And so the idea behind why God uh, may have commanded this type of destruction is because you don't want to leave any of them alive. Because if these sons of Haman would have been left alive, guess what? They would have wanted revenge. And some of them, years down the road, would have had children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren that may would have come into power. And they would have rose up against the Jewish people. And so in some way, we see Mordecai just kind of carrying out what God has really desired for his people all throughout Scripture. And God's people didn't always successfully destroy their enemies in the way that he intended. Oftentimes, they intermarried with their enemies, and they worshiped the gods of their enemies. And so this story of Mordecai is a good example of how God is at work to deliver his people, but also to destroy the enemies of his people. All right, verse 11. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will be done. Now, this is the same language that the king has, has uh, used with Esther in the past. She had gained favor with the king from the get-go, and, and he liked her a lot. And when she came before him and, and said, look, I got a request for you, and he said, whatever you want, I'll give it to you to half the kingdom. Well, he's, he's pretty much done whatever Esther is asking here again. He hears what's going on. He hears about the way that the, the Jewish people are, are destroying some who are coming against him. And he, he's reporting this to Esther. And he says, but what do you want, Esther? Is there anything else you want? Is there anything else you need? And then we see Esther make a request in verse 13. Esther answered, if it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done. So a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa. But they, are, but they did not seize any plunder. Okay, so Esther says we need one more day. There may be some people out there that still want to harm the Jews. In the law that was passed, there was only one day that the Jews could defend themselves. 
But King, is it okay if, if in certain areas, uh, in this one little spot here, where, where we, give, we give the Jewish people this law that extends to the next day? So this one part of the, of the area there uh, had, had the ability to continue to fight and defend themselves uh, up until the next day. And so, and so it was. And, it, and then it mentioned something there at the end of this, this verse 15, uh, but they did not seize any plunder. All right, verse 16. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defending themselves, and got rid of their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them but they did not seize any plunder. They fought one another, excuse me, they fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the uh, rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar and the rest 14th month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is, it is a holiday uh, when they send gifts to one another. So we see here in this passage that, that there are a lot of people who are killed that come against the Jews. 75,000, and you may think, well, well, that's a whole lot of people that came against the Jews, and it was. But, but I looked, I was curious to know like, what the population of the, of the Medo-Persian Empire was. And, and the best estimates range any, anywhere from 17 million to 35 million. So there were a lot of people in the Medo-Persian Empire. And the fact that they killed, you know, 75,000 plus uh, is, is not very many in the grand scheme of things. So there were some people who came against the Jewish people. Uh, but it would appear as though the law uh, probably deterred a lot of them, the law that the Jews could defend themselves. And so uh, the Jews had a few enemies, but there was no trouble. God was with them. They did not stand a chance against the Jewish people. And so... Whoever of those people who really hated the Jews, well, those would have probably been the ones that would have been attacking them. And so a lot of those people who hated the Jews uh, would have been weeded out through this law uh, that was passed. And then we have this information about, uh, about a day of feasting. So for some people in the land, the day of feasting was on the 14th because the command to carry out the defense of, of the Jewish people was on the 13th. Well, they did that on the 13th, and by the 14th, they were okay, and they celebrated, and they feasted. But there was that group, uh, that, that one little group there that Esther had requested, could we fight on the 13th and the 14th? And so it was the 15th before they celebrated. Now, this is, this is not really of any significance to us, but, but I suppose that the author of Esther here is addressing a problem because some people may have questioned, well, why did the, some, some of the Jews ha, uh, celebrate on one day and some of the Jews celebrate a day later? Well, the, the, the author of Esther here uh, gives us the answer to that question. And we see again uh, in verse 16 at the end of it that they did not take any plunder. Now, you may recall last week when we looked at the law, the edict that, that Mordecai had come up with, that not only could they destroy the people, but they could take their possessions as spoil. So legally, in the law, it would have been right for the Jewish people to take the things of their enemies. But, but three times here in this passage, we see that it says they did not take any of their plunder. Now, why is that? Well, I don't know why that is, but, but maybe the best suggestion that I have read as to why that is, 
is that they did not want it to appear, the Jews did not want it to appear, that they were simply attacking people for material gain. That is, it cannot be said of the Jews, well, yeah, they attacked all these people just so they could take their stuff. Nope, they did not take their stuff. They left their stuff how it was uh, 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 and, and, and left it all there when they destroyed the people. Uh, we see similar language when God's people went in uh, to the promised land. They were supposed to destroy everything, but there was one instance where a guy by the name of Achan took some of the possessions of the enemy uh, instead of destroying them, and that was wrong in the sight of God. And so maybe they recalled stories like that. Uh, so they did not take any plunder. Even though legally they could, they did not take any plunder. So it's clear that the Jewish people were not out just for material gain. Uh, they, they were out uh, for, for, to defend themselves and, and to be delivered uh, from being killed themselves. And so they did what they had to do against the people that came, but they did not improve their situation any uh, because, of, because of the things that occurred, at least not, not materialistically. They certainly improved their situation because now they were not in harm of being killed. Those people who wanted to kill them had been destroyed from Haman all the way down to the 75,000 plus that we see here. And so it says that this became a time of rejoicing the day after the battle. In the outlying lands, it was the 14th of Adar, and in the area where they fought the extra day, it was the 15th of Adar. And they sent gifts uh, to one another. Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews and all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year, because during those days the Jews got rid of their enemies. That was the, that was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king... He commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. Now, this is an interesting verse, verse 25 here, that there was this plan by the enemy that had, that had been planned by Haman on the Jews to completely destroy the Jews. But the plan was turned upside down because when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan of Haman laid, divide against the Jews, return on his own head. And so while the enemy desired destruction for God's people, what ended up happening was that the enemy of God's people received the destruction that the enemy himself uh, requested. And, 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 and maybe there's some similarity to that for us in our, in our battles because we too had a great enemy and Satan who desired to destroy us. And we see a language maybe reminiscent of what we saw with Haman. Oh, there's these evil people. They need to be destroyed. They're worthless. They're not, they're not worth anything. And we see kind of some similar language maybe to that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. 
It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. Now, our, our enemy was, was, was Satan. He is the tempter. Our enemy desires to tempt us to sin so that we will suffer the consequences of death. And what does it say of, of, of Satan here in this passage? It says that he is the one who accuses our brothers. He accuses our brothers before God day and night. He is our enemy who desires our destruction, who desires God not to have mercy and grace on us. Look at them, God. They're horrible. They're sinners. They need to be destroyed. You don't need to love them. But what, was the, what, was, what occurred to Satan? Well, he lost when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he shed his blood, and when he was resurrected, that, that took away Satan's power. Satan no longer has power that we cannot stand up to. We can stand up to any of the tactics and the temptations of the devil and sin because of Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. How are we victorious over our enemy? We are victorious over our enemy by our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And so when we recognize that we are sinners and we say, no more will I give in to sin because Jesus Christ has freed me from the power of sin and the devil. And so therefore, when we, when we recognize that truth and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I put my faith and trust in you. We are covered by his precious blood and we have victory over sin and death and there is no enemy that can stand against us. There is no weapon formed that, that will prevail against us. And so when we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, we testify to that, that God has saved us, that God has forgiven us of our sins, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so our enemy will not get the best of us because our enemy has already been defeated when Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross. And, and, and similar to what we see here, it was the king who spoke up and said, No, even though the evil one brought a charge against God's people, I will, I will destroy the evil one instead of the people of God. That's what happened here in this story in Esther. The king spoke up and said, No, the evil one who came up with the plot, they will be destroyed. But the Jewish people will be delivered. And so it is for us. Even though we are sinners, undeserving of grace, even though the, the, the enemy uh, may accuse God uh, uh, about us and our sins, God says, no, I'm delivering my people. You are the evil one. I will deliver those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so just as the Jewish people were delivered, so you and I are delivered. Not, not from a worldly enemy, but from a greater enemy, from death and the wages of sin that is death. Uh, we, are, we are freed from that and saved from that and delivered from that through Jesus Christ. Verse 26, For this reason these days are called Purim, from the word pure, because all of the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined them uh, with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year, according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation. 
family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Now here we've seen this, this, this language a couple times here in these last few verses. Uh, we talk about casting the, the pure, and then we talk about uh, this word Purim. Now you may remember from the beginning of Esther that when Haman came up with his plan to kill the Jews, that it said he, uh, he, he, he cast the, the pure, or cast the lot. Uh, pure being the, being the Persian word for lot. Now we see that language used a lot in the Old Testament, the idea of casting lots. Uh, and, and, and some have said, well, this is, this, this is like gambling. Well, maybe in some way, but, but the idea of casting lots in and of itself I don't think is a, is a bad idea. We, we can know it's not a bad idea from looking at uh, Numbers 26, uh, 52 through 55, where God commands the people to cast lots to see how the land is going to be divided. Now, God certainly would not cast his people to do something uh, that, was, that was sinful. And so casting lots in and of itself appears not to be a sinful thing, even though sometimes it may be used in a sinful way. But when we see the word pure that we saw earlier on in the book, uh, that was the, the word that's used for casting of lots. And so because the lot was cast for the Jewish people to be killed on the 13th of Adar, and indeed they were spared on that day, the Jews celebrated that, and they named the day Purim, which is the plural of the word pure, uh, kind of, kind of, a, kind of connecting it to, to what took place. Yeah, yeah. The lot was cast for the destruction of, of 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 the Jewish people, but God had other plans, and so a Jewish festival, a Jewish holiday, was born from this. This was something that the Jewish people celebrated because the lot was cast. Uh, but, but God's desire was greater than that of the lot cast. Or, or even though the lot was cast for what appeared to be the destruction of God's people, it was actually for the deliverance of God's people. Perhaps we think of a passage like Proverbs 16.33 that says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, that's a good, good verse for us to consider. Yeah, Haman cast a lot, and he thought it was going to be for the destruction of God's people. But, but what occurred? Deliverance occurred. And so uh, what do we make of casting lots? Should we as Christians today cast lots? Well, that's a good question. I don't know if we should cast lots or not. Uh, there are certainly plenty of times in the Old Testament where you see people casting lots, and, and it appears to be effective. Uh, one, another good example is Jonah. Whenever he was on, trying to run from the Lord and on the boat and the storm was going crazy and they couldn't figure out what was the cause, they had determined that somebody had done, done something that the Lord was unhappy with, and they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And so the lot there successfully revealed something. Uh, and it revealed that Jonah was the one who was guilty of running from the Lord. Uh, we, we use that, that language in our life. We say, well, this is, you know, this is the lot I've been cast in my life. That's, that's kind of the way I am. Uh, we also use it sometimes applying to gambling terms. That's where we get the word lottery from. It's a, it's a chance. You roll the dice, so to speak. You let the numbers fall wherever they may, and, and the lot will be cast. And so sometimes we do see that uh, attached to, to uh, gambling in such a way. Uh, but I do think we need to be careful if we think about casting lots. Now, what those lots look like, I don't know. Uh, some have said it could have been dice. Uh, it could have been similar to what we call drawing straws. You've probably all done that. Uh, you've probably all flipped a coin. 
uh, and and should we trust those things as guidance of the Lord and decisions that we make? Well, I don't know that we should or not. Uh, we, we should be careful with those things because uh, we might find ourselves in trouble. I think we would, we would be better off just seeking God's word and what it says other than casting lots. But should you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to cast lots on important decisions that you have to make, then I'll let you, I'll let you pray to the Lord and seek the Lord uh, for that. But I believe that probably everything that we need in Scripture is there for us in Scripture, and there's really no need to cast a lot. We know, we know what God's desire is, and we just want to pray that the Holy Spirit, uh, who works in us and through us when we accept Jesus Christ, will do the work for us in our life. But, but that's where we get that name that we see here, the, the word pure and the word purim. This was a celebration by the Jews. Why? Because God had delivered them. Even though they, had this, they were in a foreign land, they had, a, they had an enemy that was against them. When it looked like all hope was lost and there was no way that they could be delivered, God delivered them on that day. And Jewish people still celebrate this holiday today. Uh, Jews have had a, a few occasions throughout their history where things like this occurred. Hanukkah being another example of something that occurred after this where, where the Jews had enemies that were coming against them and they, they celebrate that deliverance. And uh, uh, so we see, we see this idea of celebration among the Jews. But sadly, the Jews missed the most important thing. You see, the Jews still celebrate these festivals and these days and these Purim and all of these things. And it's because they have missed Jesus Christ. There is something better to celebrate. And that is what we want to recognize today, that for us, our, our situation looked just as hopeless and just as, as desperate. I mean, we are sinners. that We do things we shouldn't do and say things we shouldn't say and we think things we shouldn't think. Sometimes horrible things that we're guilty of. And how are we going to be saved? Sometimes it seems like there's no hope. There's no way. That's what it seemed like for God's people uh, throughout the Old Testament to the time of Jesus. And maybe today you feel that way. But I want to tell you there is hope. Not, not in deliverance from worldly kings like, like Mordecai and Esther had to depend on, but deliverance from God. And really, I mean, it was deliverance of God in this story. It wasn't a worldly king. But, but we have a better king that deliverance comes through now. We don't, we don't seek our president or, or anybody in the world for deliverance. We say, no, we have a king in Jesus Christ. And he is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And he is our deliverance if we put our faith in him. Even though God's not mentioned, we see this idea of, of, of fasting and praying in the, in the book of Esther. Well, who were they fasting and praying to? Well, they were fasting and praying to the Lord. It seems obvious that that is the case. Who is the one that delivered them? It is the Lord who delivered them, and it is the Lord who will deliver us. Yeah, through Mordecai and Esther, the king he chose was King Ahasuerus. But for, but for all of those people, and you and I, there was a better king coming, and that was King Jesus. And that is where our deliverance comes. And that is what we need to celebrate today. 
We don't celebrate Purim. We don't celebrate Hanukkah. We don't celebrate anything. There's one thing that we are called to celebrate in Scripture, and that is that Jesus Christ has been resurrected, that he gave his life on a cross, that he shed his blood, that he was placed in a tomb, that he raised from that tomb, and this is what the Christian is called to remember and to celebrate. And that trumps every other Jewish feast, festival, and holiday that there is because Jesus, being the perfect Son of God, has fulfilled everything that needs to be fulfilled. And so in Jesus we celebrate, not one day a year, but every day of our life because Jesus is our great deliverer. And if the Jewish people had reason to celebrate being delivered from Haman, how much more do we have reason to celebrate being able to be delivered from sin and the death that comes from it? So I don't know what your hope is in today, but if it's not in Jesus Christ, you have no hope. Maybe there are some in here today and you've not put your hope and your faith in Jesus. I encourage you to do it. That's where deliverance comes from. And for those of us who are here today who have put our faith in Jesus, then let us celebrate, not just on one day a year or two days a year like the Jews did, but let us celebrate every day and say, God, we praise you because you're good. We praise you because you sent Jesus Christ. And I thank you, God, for your grace and for forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for these good words. And we thank you for just showing us how you are, you are so cool, God. Sometimes you work in your word in these miraculous ways that are just supernatural. And God, sometimes you work just through ordinary circumstances by putting people in the right place at the right time and causing everything to work into place, fall into place. So God, I pray that you help us to remember that in our life, that you are with us. And God, you desire to deliver all of us who would put their faith and trust in you. You want us all to be your children. And God, you desire to deliver your children. And so God, I pray that if there are some in here today that don't know you, that they would, that they would put their faith in you today for the first time and find hope, God. God, maybe there are some in here today that are already yours. And maybe from time to time, we just need to be reminded of how, of how we have been delivered by you. God, it's not by us. It's not anything that we have done. But it's because of all that you did through Jesus on the cross. And so we thank you, God, for deliverance. And I pray that we'd celebrate that, God. Maybe there are days and weeks that go by sometimes without us acknowledging you or praising you. But God, let us, let us praise you today in these few minutes as we close and as we leave and on into this week and the days to come that we would praise you and that we would thank you for your deliverance through Jesus Christ. And I pray that everybody in this room would experience that deliverance today before they leave. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.